Hello and welcome to episode 39, I think. I probably should have checked before I started this intro. Of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. This week is part two of my interview with Bob Olson, the mastering engineer at Motown Records. Uh, a really exciting conversation for me to have had. <laughs> I absolutely loved it. And I, like I said last week, I love Motown. And uh, the chance to speak with Bob was uh, was just a dream. It's absolutely brilliant. And he's uh, so lovely and so insightful. So um, we're just going to dive straight in. Here we go. Part two of my conversation with Bob Olson. So you guys were mixing extremely bass heavy mixes to get through this so to sort of well, overcome. What most, what most of them would do is they would put a a 70 or 100 cycle high pass filter on just the bass and then boost it at 60 with a Poltec. <laughs> you know, you cut it at 70 and boost it at 60. and get it to sound the way they wanted and that and they were and the way they worked is quality control would they would go to the hot 45 and quality control would listen to the different ones they take the mix that they liked and then uh they would send that acetate with notes on what they wanted changed how they felt it could be improved oh okay so the engineers were comparing these acetates to their mixes so they could tell what it was doing to it. Okay, interesting. So it was all part of the internal system. Mm. And that, that's also why CD remasters are such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm interested in... Um, so again, I'm I'm kind of coming from the perspective of of sort of uh, Abbey Road and some of the microphones they were using. And I noticed in um, in your tape op interview that you mentioned about using the the Shure five four fives a lot at Motown, which later then became the SM fifty seven. And I just I find it really interesting that a lot of these studios with such massive reputations were using, you know, fairly standard equipment. It wasn't anything particularly, um, particularly special. It, it kind of meant what was going in was the special thing as opposed to what was picking it up. Yeah. Although in, in 1968, I believe it was Motown switched to using all Neumann KM86 small capsule three pattern microphones mm -hmm. and the only other studio on earth with 30 km86s was emi heavy road <laughs> 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 and so i when it was when it became obvious about 1970 that detroit was not long for the world i started buying microphones and bringing them in Sneaking them in <laughs> so that I could learn how to use other microphones because no other studio on earth had 
30 Neumann KM86s. <laughs> now, as it happened, the KM86 worked spectacularly well. It was a brilliant move. <laughs> and, and I learned some things. I mean, for example, I learned that the main thing you need on a bass drum microphone is a pop filter. Because ah. the air will pop the microphone. And when we went to try to use the Neumanns on bass drums, <laughs> we well, ran into that problem and, and discovered that the pop filter sound solved it really well and it actually sounded really really good and from that point on in life i've always used pop filter on the on the bass drum mic whereas the the previous technique was to use the microphone that was left over <laughs> <laughs> that's really i'm a so i'm a drummer uh, and then move before, it around so. until it yeah until you found the sweet spot until you found the sweet spot so that was a that was a great learning thing and i bought three neumann u67s from the guy who ralph tarana who became our studio manager mm -hmm. and his studio had gone under and he was brought in and he sold me these mics really quite cheap and i've they've supported me <laughs> oh i can imagine yeah wow. <laughs> it's wonderful but uh anyway well for drums one of the biggest lessons i ever had for drums was i was recording jeff beck all right yes and mickey most the producer was just constantly saying, duck the cymbals, duck the cymbals. And I had nothing but KM86s, and I'm trying to think of, well, how in the name of God do I duck the cymbals? So I thought, okay, I'll set it to figure eight, to aim the edges at the cymbals. Mm. Well, lo and behold, that got the best overhead drum sound I've ever heard. Wow. And I've done it every time since. Very interesting because it kind of thins out the cymbal sound so you don't get that much low frequencies and you have to EQ the bottom, bring the bottom up a little bit, but it gives you a really, really good overall drum sound. And then you use the snare mic and the bass drum mic as fill that's really interesting. I'm, I can picture it in my head. I, 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 and, and I tried a, a variation on that. I found out that a Muscle Shoals had been using a, a Neumann in front of the drum kit. And so I decided to try it doing that. And that worked really, really well. If you've got a great drummer, which obviously Muscle Shoals did, and then uh, you you guys had plenty at Motel. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, Jeff Jeff Beck had Cozy Powell. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'd never heard of him, but oh my god, he was good. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was him and Bob Babbitt and Beck. Wow, that's a 
quite quite the rhythm section <laughs> yeah oh oh beck wanted to hire wanted to put babbitt in the band and babbitt had just signed a contract with motown for a band he was part of and so he couldn't do it but imagine how history would have changed oh he's such an underrated bass player uh, yeah absolutely he would have been uh I mean, he'd have been as well known as James Jameson had he been, you know, been given that much exposure. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he was the master of 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 the loop, the pattern. Mm -hmm. Just, I mean, Jameson was basically taking a doo-wop bass vocalist part and doing a jazz improvisation on it. <laughs> I mean, Jameson never played the same thing twice, ever. No. But it was always really good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whereas Babbitt would take a, a pattern and turn it into an absolute groove. And it was amazing. The other nice thing about with Babbitt, you didn't have to do anything to the bass sound. In fact, what was hilarious is when I moved, part of why I moved to Nashville from San Francisco was that Babbitt was here. Oh, really? Interesting. And he introduced me to Ed Green, a drummer who had moved here from L.A. And the two of them were pretty much the top R&B rhythm section in the country in 2000 when we hooked up again. Because I hadn't seen him since 1972. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so <laughs> we hooked up and his friend Ed was here. And I'm sitting here going, oh, my God, this is the greatest bass and drums on earth, and they're hardly working. Opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in fact, it's funny because opportunity, the opportunity improved even more because uh, I went down to Florida. A friend of mine was, they were doing a recording academy thing and I went down to see them and afterward they had a, a small board meeting and they invited me to go into that and one of the people who came to the board meeting was Tom Dowd and ultimately I got to spend a half hour hanging out with him very cool and he had he had just watched the documentary about him for the first time. And this was maybe six months before he passed away, unfortunately. Because I mean we really hit it off. It was yeah. it was in, incredible. But anyway, I told him about Babbitt and Green, and he said, Oh my God, get them together with Reggie Young. We did. And we were, I mean, it was really kind of a funny thing because it was right when this sort of neo-soul thing was starting to happen. Yeah. And my attitude was, my God, why well, try to imitate it with a bunch of distortion when you've got the real players? <laughs> <laughs> wow, and absolutely. so we got some tracks and uh, a friend who I met through that tape op article, Ed Pedersen. Okay. Uh, he was into it, and so 
we cut some tracks. And well, it was funny because Babbitt thought, Reggie Young, he, how would I ever get to play with Reggie Young? <laughs> As we tried calling, and I don't know if Dowd had been in touch with him or what, but he was absolutely thrilled to play with them. And so we put this dream rhythm section together of, of Reggie Young playing lead guitar. We had Dave Hungate playing rhythm guitar rather than bass. He's the best rhythm guitar player I've ever heard. Interesting. Oh, wow. But he refused to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it was funny. He was playing rhythm guitar and Babbitt was playing drums and Green was playing that. And we had a couple different keyboard players and oh my god it was great and so we cut these tracks on this girl and then lo and behold the american labels didn't get it but we wound up getting an offer from universal in europe okay but when it came down to doing some touring our singer didn't want to do it uh and chickened out and I mean it's actually it's a, it's a classic problem I was talking with a, a friend about that when, when an artist gets a big break and it basically comes down to will they be successful or not you know to them delivering the goods yeah a lot of them shoot themselves in the foot. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they would rather they would rather have when they don't have anybody to blame. <laughs> they they do that, and that happened with this, and we wound up with a bunch of tracks with nobody on it. It was especially difficult because she was an alto, and so it was too high for most men and too low for most women. <laughs> and I tried playing around with some pitch shifting stuff, but it lost. That that stuff can really kill the phrasing and the feel of yeah. something. Where where yeah. are these tracks now? I'm I'm sure everybody who, who will listen is just thinking, where are these? Oh, <laughs> well, there we've got them. Are you going to do anything with them? Or I mean, it was funny them? because it was done in Pro Tools. It mm. also, I, I had had a theory all along that the problem with digital was not the lack of tape, but rather was the, the skill and the touch of the musicians. What, was, because... And it proved it was correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because the thing of it is, see what changed is back when, back in the 60s, a PA system consisted of a vocal mic and some kind of a speaker. And so everybody had to be responsible for what they sounded like as they played it. 
And they, and in order to hear each other and hear the singer, they had to play a lot softer than what became common. I mean, with stage monitors and all that stuff, all of a sudden people are just slamming away and they're having to mic the drums because they can't be heard over the other crap. And, <laughs> so it's, and a big, it just, it's a big fight for levels, isn't it? Just going up. Yeah, and, up. and it turns into this big fight for levels and the tone goes right out the window on everything. Whereas like in the studio, if you get rid of the headphones, the sound and the quality of the performance increases dramatically. Well, you really have to listen. Uh, you know, you have to dial dial right in. Yeah, you have to dial right in. And in order for everybody to hear each other, you have to be playing soft enough. But the thing of it is, that means that when you do hit something, it, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've really got dynamics. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I've been doing, um, playing around with doing some um, sessions at my studio, which we, we've called the two track sessions, doing, uh, playing all together in a room in exactly that way, um, you know, recording live to, um, I've got a Revox tape machine, you know, right to the Revox, um, no, no computer at all. And uh, yeah, it's exactly what you just described. You know, that you have the, it's back to playing, it's a different environment to studios than, than I'm used to. You know, oh, yeah. used to working in. It's fantastic. I'm enjoying it. Oh, yeah. And the old studios were designed to reflect a flat response off the walls. They were totally designed to help the musicians hear each other. Mm, yeah, that's interesting, too. I hadn't considered that. And that all went out the window about 1970. <laughs> And the introduction of the dead studio. Wow, yes. <laughs> people wanted separation. And of course, the only reason you needed separation was to go in and fix stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, uh, so anyway, well, I keep I keep hoping that some kids are gonna discover doing live <laughs> on stage. And I mean, there's no reason you can't record every performance you do now. No, not at all. I mean, that was unthinkable in the past, but somebody is going to do that, have a number one record out of it, <laughs> and it'll all go back to live recording. I'm, I'm really curious about. So we're talking about sort of late '60s, '70s. This the sort of move between um, valve or tube and transformers, uh, transistors. Even um, I gather at Motown you had both sets of of technology. We had a tube studio and a transistor studio, and had to work back and forth between them. And what was the reason for having to work back and forth? Did one person? prefer another one sound to another or well know. we had to we had to move between the two studios mm. i mean we were on shifts oh i see so someone would be recording in the transistor studio and someone would be recording in the in the tube studio yeah i see yeah and it was all scheduling and, and how, how did that affect I mean, the, the sound quality is mammoth. Well, well, what it affected mostly was the workflow, but I didn't, I didn't fully understand it until years later. Because the, uh, I mean, with the tubes, 
You just plugged in the microphones and hit record. <laughs> I mean, it was really a whole different way of looking at it with the transistor stuff. It never sounded good. And so you had to, you started playing with EQ and I mean, the, the transistor studio had a little Neumann equalizer on each channel and it was a 14 input board, which we were using for 16 track. So you had two channels without EQ. And then the monitor mixer that was 16 faders. And, and it had a variable, oh, basically it was two 40 dB mic preamps with a, a pot in between them, the knob. You turn the knob and set the level with that in the transistor studio. In the tube studio, the uh, booster amps were after the faders. The picture behind me is the tube studio. Yeah, I can see, yeah. And there were basically these two boards. It was a six input, which is that black, let's see if I can, that black section in the center. Yes, yep. That's the original six channel board. It had Langevin amplifiers. And above it are the echo sends. There were three echo sends for each channel, which was unheard of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nobody did that until the 70s. So very cool. So I'm just, I'm I'm looking at the picture. Yeah, <laughs> it's very cool. And of course the clock, which every because your your level went to hell after three minutes. <laughs> so that's also that's why there were fades, and uh, that's why the records ended with a vamp. So you could come out right at three minutes and keep your level. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> What, why that? what happened to the levels after then? You ran out of space on the record. Oh, I see. Oh, sorry. <laughs> there you go. That's my. Uh, that's my. You wanted to. You wanted to keep the grooves as far apart as you could. Mm. And at three minutes, it took a big jump, and all of a sudden, you you were fighting the low end in the cutting. Interesting. I didn't know that about fades. That's a, it makes sense. Yeah, so that's why there were fades and that's why every record studio control room you'll see had a, a clock mm. on the console <laughs> for timing the takes as they went down. <laughs> why do you think the valves sound, uh, the tube sound was so uh, sort of rich compared to the transistor sound on the way in? Okay, well, I think a lot of it, believe it or not, it wasn't particularly the distortion. That was a bunch of bullshit from the people selling the transistor stuff. The American tube gear, now the, the European was different because they everything was designed to run at much lower 
levels in Europe. In fact, that was why EMI had to modify American equipment in order to use it in their studio. Yes, yeah. Because they're running it, forget what Ken Scott told me, minus nine or minus 14 or something. Anyway, they were running everything like 10, 10 or 15 dB lower than we were in the US. And but the, so the, the American preamps, you could drive a speaker with. They have massive headroom. And if you, if you measured it from noise to say 1% distortion, they had more dynamic range. Wow. So the transistor guys said, okay, well, here we have a lower noise level, which was true. Mm -hmm. And then they said, and at 0.5% distortion, we have greater dynamic range from the noise to that. And that was true. But if you were to measure it from the higher noise level of the tube gear to where the tube gear clipped, you could have as much as 10 dB more dynamic range in the tube preamp. Interesting. So we rarely thought about pads or, and they were, they were fixed 40 dB gain preamps. And so the structure was, was preamp, fader, and another second 40 dB preamp, booster. Okay. They called it. Mm. And all that came up on the patch bay. So you, you could patch stuff in or, you know, do whatever. Yeah. It's great. In fact, that's why, that's why I, I wailed with Pro Tools. <laughs> for anybody that's used a patch bay, <laughs> you're right at home. <laughs> if you haven't used a patch bay, it's going to be tough. Yeah. I suspect. Yeah. I mean, never, never having tried to use it without having used a patch bay, I can't judge. <laughs> But anyway, uh, everything at Motown came up on the patch bay, and and we had the the six Langevin preamps, and there were eight homemade preamps that, for some reason or other, were bright as all get out. We hated them, oh, really? except for drums. Interesting. <laughs> So those eight typically got used for drums. Although I hear now somebody's going to manufacture a Motown mic preamp. That just that one. Really interesting. I don't know. <laughs> <Go figure. laughs> but if you want the ones that, that we got the great sound with, it, it was the Longevans, Longevan tube preamps, and an Ampex MX10 mixer. Well, they, you, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, that, that was what we used, but what we, we were trying. But the other studio, you, you had Altec. I mean, they were early silicon transistors, so that was good. 
and there were Altic 40 dB or 40 or 45 dB amplifiers. And then they built a high pass filter in because the studio had a serious traffic noise problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Neumann equalizers. I didn't know about the high pass filter until some friends of mine built a studio and bought the console, <laughs> discovered didn't have any low end. And oh, so it was in built into the console before. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so I, I mean, I had been, I had been regularly taking the hundred cycle thing and boosting it six dB <laughs> in there for anything that had any low end and i just thought that sounded good i didn't realize i was solving a technical <laughs> issue <laughs> wow but <laughs> so it was it going outside of motown was an adjustment yeah i, I can imagine if you, <laughs> in terms of my experience with that and that's that's where i had done most of the rock stuff although the the mickey most Jeff Beck sessions were in the old studio. I wonder if you could talk um, specifically about the um, the Marvin Gaye "What's Going On" sessions that you were involved with. So, am I right in thinking you you were there for the the vocal stream? Yeah, I was running the tape machine. There was nothing happening. I was on the night shift at the old Hitsville studio, but we didn't have anything happening, and so I came over to Golden World and ran the tape machine and did all punch-ins or drop-ins as the British <laughs> terminology goes. And on, on, on that song in particular, and, uh, and it was interesting because he, he had several ideas of how to do his phrasing. Mm. And so they did two and this was early 16 track uh although it the original tracks had been done 16 track but it was some of his first experience was 16 track and so there were more than one track for the vocal and back then we were all very concerned with tape generation loss so we didn't really want to bounce vocals together if we could get out of it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he wound up taking home a, a seven and a half reference tape. That's what we used before cassettes <laughs> <laughs> with one vocal on one side and the other vocal on the other side. And what he was supposed to do was take it home, decide what he wanted in which spot. and figure out how it would go together. And he decided he liked both in a whole bunch of spots. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was how that came down. Yeah, I bet that was a fun a fun time splicing all that together. Or... Yeah. <laughs> and then I wound up doing the strings for the album with Cal Harris, who was my boss. So he took over once the this the sort of is the trio of uh, Holland, Dozier Holland left. That, that yeah, well, what? Well, that was how I got it, got 
hauled out of my nerve cage and thrown in the studio. <laughs> was Holland Dozer left, and they took two or three of the engineers with them. Oh, okay. And all of a sudden, we had a bunch of work to do. We didn't have any engineers, and they knew that I had I'd taken music literature in college, and was a horrendous violin player. <laughs> and so, but I mean, you know, I knew a little bit about reading music and and so forth, and so. So I got hauled out and thrown in the studio and given a crash course in recording by Cal Harris and Joe Atkinson. Well, I knew that Joe Atkinson had come from Atlantic. What I didn't know was that Cal Harris had come from Gold Star. And before he was at Gold Star, he was at United Western. And that he had been the assistant on a whole bunch of the Beach Boys. Wow. <laughs> and that he had done the basic tracks, part of them, for Good Vibrations at Gold Star. Wow. <laughs> no, I would have been absolutely terrified if I'd have known that, but I didn't find that out until I saw a credit on their CD box. <laughs> oh, man. 2000, I called him up and I said, what's this? And, oh, yeah, man, I did this. And, you know, he described his whole adventure and, he had basically, he'd gotten a first-class Federal Communications Commission broadcast license when he was 16. And when he got out of high school, he moved to Hollywood and walked into United Western wanting to get a job because he wanted to do recording. And apparently, a 16-year-old black kid with a FCC license, Bill Putnam couldn't let him out of the building. <laughs> and, and so he wound up being the assistant to what's his name who did the Beach Boys. And oh, I'm I'm terrible with names under pressure. I <laughs> yeah, well, I am I I used to remember them, but <laughs> I've been having problems this last year with <laughs> <laughs> so I can't think of the guy's name now but anyway he was his assistant and then he wound up doing vocals for Brian Wilson because Brian wanted wanted to overdub these real complicated background parts and so forth and he couldn't get enough time at United Western so they would send him with Cal over to an advertising studio nearby. And I believe the stuff was four track. And he and Cal would do the vocals. And then they'd bring them back to United Western where they would do the mixes. Wow. So uh, anyway, he, he was the, he got hired at Gold Star. He was the first black first engineer in a major LA studio. Oh, wow. Very interesting. And then Smokey Robinson talked him into coming to Detroit and working for Motown. And so after Holland Dozer Holland left, he, he was, in fact, it's interesting. The first mix he did for Motown was Marvin Gaye's I Heard It Through the Grapevine. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, and they wouldn't release it for a number of years because we couldn't cut it as loud as the competition. And when they tried to do a mix that we could cut loud, it didn't have the groove. <laughs> so I actually watched the process of that being held up. And finally, Norman Whitfield talked them into releasing the thing. And it quickly, Gladys's version had been the biggest record Motown had ever had. And then Marvin's version passed it up. <laughs> despite, despite the low volume. Yeah. That record, to me, has always stood out as different from the, the, the Motown records that came before it. it. I can't quite put my finger on what it is. It's somehow... I mean, it sounds like Marvin Gaye. It sounds like the What's Going On album. It's got, it's a bit softer almost and a bit more dynamic. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. it's definitely a change. Yeah, it was very dynamic. And that was, but I mean, you know, he was from Hollywood and completely outside the Motown engineering tradition. So I basically got to learn the New York the Los Angeles and the Detroit. I mean, I got the graduate <laughs> education <laughs> in recording. Well, yeah. But didn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> do you still do any um any mastering now? Like what's your sort of what where what are you at mastering wise? I'm I'm leading towards your I constantly do mastering now. So what's your experiences as a mastering engineer? Not necessarily experiences, but as a mastering engineer, mastering records for for today's sound, as opposed to back in the 60s, that Motown sound, what's, what's the biggest changes that you've seen? Uh, well, mastering is the same problems, basically. I mean, the, the real difference is what was in front of the microphones. Mm. And while today's obsession with what I call a Les Paul Memorial overdub party, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, well, honest to God, I have never seen, a, when I've gotten to experience both ways, I've never seen a musician that could give as good a, music, a performance overdubbing as they could playing live. I mean, I've just never seen it happen. No. No matter how experienced they are. We did a, a thing at a NAM show. They did a thing about overdubbing vocals, and we had a couple top session singers that you've heard on a zillion hits in, and they're singing and they're doing this whole thing. And so at the end, after the talk, I kind of butted in and said, okay, now why don't you try the song without the headphones? And every jaw in the room dropped with <laughs> what they heard. <laughs> wow, I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> they're experiencing the air moving, so they're, you know, they're, they're, it's different 
you know, it's, it is different hearing it in in real oh, time, as it were. Oh, and the singer. I mean, and the problem is that I mean, it's hilarious. People talk about you know they're obsessed with the timing and getting latency down. And I highly suggest figuring out a way to do analog monitoring. You know, just a little cheap mixer, mm -hmm. but split the, split the microphone into that if they need a microphone. Yeah, yeah. And uh, run the mix into it and lo and behold all those problems go away yeah in interesting <laughs> and i mean the, the whole latency thing is bizarre to watch because it i mean it absolutely is true that a lower latency these new ultra low latency hardware things it definitely is way better than what a lot of people are used to mm -hmm but they don't quite realize that they could use a little Behringer mixer. And some kind of a splitter on the microphone and. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and there it is. Yeah, that's it. It, it well, and the other thing that's interesting is that I don't think it's really about the delay as much as it is about comb filtering. Okay. Because you are, you know, you are hearing your voice mm -hmm. live. And when there's a delay to a certain point, you'll hear a comb filter effect and that screws people up. But the other thing that screws people up, which is if you hold your hands, you can hear. Yeah, there's a, You'll hear a pitch shift. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> What's that called? It's got a name, hasn't it? That that effect. I can't remember now, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's a and that's a problem. Mm. I mean, I'm hearing me. Hey. I mean, I hear the pitch go up. Mm. So Is if I good? were trying to match something, I'm going to go flat. That's true. And then when you have headphones, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and nobody used headphones before the late 60s. Mm. You know, if, if you were going to overdub something, you had the speaker out in the studio and you just played the track in the speaker and you sang to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the bleed gave you the sound that everybody wants to get from delays. <laughs> it's, it's insane. It is. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, the idea of live playback in a studio now just feels, I mean, in the world that I've grown up in, that feels like absolute, like you just do not do that. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's it. <laughs> Well, it's been an amazing journey watching this transition. And I mean, to a certain degree, I can tell people, but to a certain degree, you, you know, you've got to be 
reasonably polite too, because you don't <laughs> you don't want to mess with people's heads too much. No. part two of my conversation with bob olson i hope you've enjoyed that uh i've got really nothing to report at the moment so i am just going to say thank you to joe kane and david henshaw uh, for the music and the artwork for this podcast and i would like to thank you for listening um just an, another reminder that if you are enjoying this podcast and i know there are there are lots of you out there uh, if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, just, uh, you know, stars, it doesn't need to be anything written. Um, that would be fantastic. Uh, you, you just scroll down on the app and leave a review and that's all it is. Um, so if you'd like to do that, I'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support this podcast by buying one of the lovely enamel mugs that I've had made, you can do that at allyouneedisdrums.com and there is a shop Uh doesn't matter where you are in the world, it's free postage, so I'll send it over to you. This week I've sent some to California and sent one to Sweden, um, which was very cool. So anyway, I hope you have a lovely week and I will speak to you next episode. Goodbye! Goodbye!